No one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of February 6th. No one knew it was. By and large, the town, not knowing it was dead, would go off to their jobs with no inkling of what lay ahead. Welcome to Now Playing's Salem's Lot Retrospective Series. He'll enjoy Mr. Browdell, and he'll enjoy you. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King Movie Series. Hosted by Arnie. Sometimes I wonder, you know, why you're so interested in monsters and magic. Stuart. He's nice enough, but a city guy, a bit abrasive, you know? And Jacob. The boy has a mind like yours, inquisitive and skeptical. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series, and keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. What the hell is all this secrecy about? What the hell's going on in this town? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Don't be scared. Come, join us. Today, we're discussing A Return to Salem's Lot, starring Michael Moriarty, Andrew Dugan, Samuel Fuller, Evelyn Keyes, June Havoc, and somewhere in there's Tara Reid. <laughs> also somewhere in there is Ronnie Blakely. Yes. And directed by Larry Cohen. I'm Arnie, a returning co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A., this is Jacob. I'm not a Nazi hunter. I'm a Nazi killer. Ah, uh, I knew you'd go for those lines. Wait, is this our Inglorious Bastards retrospective here? <laughs> oh, Samuel Fuller. What a surprise. Now, I've got to say, I think I am the only one here on this podcast that is returning to a return to Salem's Lot. I did see this back in the 80s. It was sitting on a rental shelf. I'm not even sure when I rented it that I knew it was a sequel. I think because the box art was so similar to the ads used to sell the TV movie, I think I thought I was renting the TV movie. But I saw it back in the <laughs> 80s. I don't mind sharing that. I thought it was one of the worst things I had ever seen. I was dreading, dreading, dreading this movie until I looked at that cast list. And yes, Samuel Fuller and Tara Reid in the same movie. Ronnie Blakely. Yes. And at the head of it all, Larry Cohen, who when I saw this, I had no idea who he was, but now recognizes a very quirky. He has a very strange niche in the horror genre. Some might call him a master. Some might call him a satirist, but... He's the guy that made the stuff, and It's Alive, and Q, and... Maniac Cop. So many things I've spent my hours watching. He wrote those. He didn't direct those. But yes, he has been involved in a lot of quirky... Uh, horror comedy is actually what he does. It's not horror at all. It would be wrong to label him a master of suspense and terror, but he takes genre elements in the horror genre and fashions them into... Some kind of midnight movie experience. Yeah, you're right. I had not seen A Return to Salem's Lot. I discussed my experiences trying to watch Salem's Lot in the 90s. If I couldn't even get through the first half hour of that, what would make me think this would be any better? But coming into it this time, I did go in with an open mind. Because I'm like, there has to be 
something here. First of all, I'm happy to say this was not made for television. This was intended to be direct-to-video back when direct-to-video was just burgeoning as a market on VHS. Oh, that explains the copious fucks and shits in this movie. Yeah, and tits. <laughs> yes, I, I'm like, what TV was this on? Was this an HBO, a Showtime? <laughs> There's no way this was on TV. It's not TV. It's VHS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I knew of no theater that aired it at the time. I mean... It did go to a couple. Wow. They didn't intend for it to go to theaters when they made it, but at the last minute, they're like, ah, what the hell, we'll throw it to some theater screens too. Uh, see, I thought it was directed at VHS. I was going to cite this as the first time I ever experienced one of those, because up until that point, I didn't know that you could do that. I thought it was a rule. You had to go to the movies, <laughs> then you go to VHS, if you didn't start out on television. It screwed me uh, in the head to know that this was made specifically to sit in a video store box, uh, waiting for the unsuspecting to rent it. And Larry Cohen went after this with a vengeance. Turns out, he was one of the many writers who turned in a draft for Salem's Lot back in the 70s. And despite the producer calling his work utter crap, he still arbitrated for a writing credit and didn't get it. And he sunk his teeth in, and finally they're like, you know, here, take the name, go make a sequel. Go do what you want with it. Yeah, I think he might have been involved in developing the TV series as well. He, For whatever reason, he spent a long part of his career developing and working on Salem's Lot. I wonder if what we're seeing here is not, in fact, a sequel, but maybe some of his ideas on how to adapt it into a movie that he just kind of called a sequel. There's not much connection. When you look at Toby Hooper and you look at this, maybe it's the same town, none of the same characters, certainly not the same vibe. I think that it's just... His own thing. And again, look at the stuff that he made. It's alive. You guys ever see that about the killer baby? I mean, total camp fest. Long time ago. I saw that one. I saw the stuff. Yeah, in the 80s, I didn't understand that that was satire. I thought a movie about killer yogurt, this is the worst thing of all time. <laughs> I mean, I just don't think I had the sensibilities to appreciate Larry Cohen and his very quirky sense of humor when I sat down to watch this so many years ago. I don't know that we'll find this was based off anything from the TV series because the TV series was intended as a follow-up to that TV movie. And Cohen has gone on the record and said, I didn't like the TV movie. I thought it was dull and I thought it lacked humor, but I liked King's book. And so when they gave him the property, he just wrote his own screenplay. And the only thing he made as part of the premise was vampires in New England. And sure enough, that's what we get. Yes, and a character who's a writer, they're returning to it. I mean, Return to Salem's Lot, it does involve a human coming back and finding it not to be the place of his childhood. There are tangential connections. You, Like I said, it almost feels like a crazy midnight movie remake rather than a continuation of what happened before. I can believe Larry Cohen didn't like Toby Hooper's work because this is nothing like it. Yeah, I was going to say, this doesn't seem like a sequel at all to me. This just seems like something totally different. I know last week, Arnie, you said King did some short stories, a prequel and a sequel to Salem's Lot. I'm guessing those had nothing to do with what we're going to discuss tonight. Nope, you can hear me talking about Jerusalem's Lot, Gone Books and Nachos, but no, it has nothing to do with this. And Cohen said... This isn't Salem's Lot 2. This is a return to Salem's Lot. So those story elements you talk about, Stuart, that's what he's returning to. Mm. 
Well, then I guess you better give us the plot. When last we left Salem's lot, Ben Mears and Mark Petrie had set a fire that would presumably burn down the entire town and kill most of the vampires, but apparently that was an alternate dimension, or at the very least, TV a decade earlier before TV movies were put on video. So everything we talked about last week, forget it. No, now Salem's Lot is a town full of vampires who came to America in the 1600s. (laughs) They settled there and lived there for almost 400 years. And they keep to themselves pretty much. They don't really want to kill anyone because AIDS, hepatitis, drugs, human blood is bad. They just feed off cattle, except for special occasions. This is twilighting vampires before Twilight ever came out. But despite being immortal, the vampires want somebody to write their history. Maybe they get forgetful in their old age. So when jackass anthropologist filmmaker Joe Weber brings his rebellious teenage son Jeremy to town to reconnect in his aunt's old home, the vampires see an opportunity. They pimp out some female vampires, a young teen girl for Jeremy and a 17-year-old girl that Joe lusted after in his youth for the anthropologist. And Jeremy's all into it. He's ready to be turned into a vampire, but despite getting the 17-year-old girl pregnant, Joe sees the vampires for the monsters they are. So when an elderly Nazi hunter randomly drives into town, Joe and the Nazi hunter team up and start killing all the vampires. (laughs) (laughs) Samuel Fuller! I can't wait to talk about him. Finally, the master vampire, whose Judge Axel is his name, shows his true blue vampire face, and Jeremy is turned off by the vampire's murderous nature, so the two men set fire to all the coffins in Salem's lot, leaving the vampires nowhere safe to go, while the sun rises and credits roll. Well, that was short. (laughs) Yeah? But then again, so is this movie. We're not doing uh, two nights of television. This is barely clear in a 90-minute runtime. And it may run 90 minutes, but man, is this a two-act structure, perhaps? It does not even (laughs) seem to have the normal three acts. And really, I just glossed over so much of it because I don't fucking get it. Yes, thank you. (laughs) We're going to talk about it. The whole point of this podcast is to explain away what the hell's going on and the incredulousness I feel during some of these plot turns, which isn't to say... (laughs) One way or the other on the movie, but man, there's a lot to talk about despite a short plot summary. I was dreading this. I've already stated that I just felt like I was about to watch the very worst one yet. You know, Carrie 2002. This is going to top this from everything in my memory. It's a cheap, low budget, non-scary, dull, nonsensical thing. And I'm proven right. Almost instantly, we're expected to believe that someone's backyard is South America. (laughs) And that there are some quote-unquote natives wearing finger paint and they're about to sacrifice or something. I'm like, you see, this is... Is just garbage and then i hear the line this is a fertility ritual yeah the guy knocked up the chief's favorite wife and i laugh and i don't stop laughing throughout this movie what i did not get 
And what I did not remember from my first and only other viewing of this movie was that this is a comedy. It's okay, I think, that this is a cheesy, cheap, stupid-looking movie because it's not a horror movie at all. You know, this is my first time seeing it. And when, with this opening scene, I, I'm thinking some bad Disney backlot in the 1950s where they're trying to educate us on those natives. And, yeah, I get to that line and I'm laughing. I don't know. I realized later that, yes, this is a satire, but I had no idea how to take this film with this kind of opening, watching human sacrifice and the documentarians, the anthropologists. Well, we're just going to let them watch this guy get killed because we, we got to stand back. We can't get involved. Like, I, I get it later on, but I think it was just such a shock with this opening how poorly it looked just the poor line deliveries everything it didn't click right away for me being my first time watching this i was taken back to another podcast we did another movie we reviewed though instantly you talk about these lines being dropped and this atmosphere and this just cinematography quality and most especially the synth score a synth score that I think somebody broke into John Carpenter's house and <laughs> stole a B track. And I'm thinking immediately within five minutes of this, Halloween three, the season of the witch. I don't know what this fertility ritual is going to have to do with vampires. There's a lot of blood. There's people dying. Are, is this going to raise a vampire spirit? How are we going to get from the South America jungle to Maine? I don't know. But instantly, I'm put in a better mood by this score and this whole thing because despite the Gilligan's Island back aisle effects, <laughs> I'm taken to a happier time, a simpler time in horror cinema. <laughs> Simple is right. And yeah, I hated it from the get-go as a kid. But here, it's the lines. The line readings may be bad, but the lines, there's a lot of sharp, funny things being said. And not actually, not all of them are jokes. I mean, I like Joe's response when he's got this surly assistant that's basically there just to say, you're a real shithead for exploiting the situation and videotaping while someone is murdered. But he reminds him that if these people saw what we did in San Quentin and with the gas chamber, uh, they would probably be equally appalled. It just has an interesting counterculture perspective. I think that's what Larry Cohen is bringing here with this script. This is trash, and I do not want to set the idea out there that what I am watching I think is good, but I think that as trash goes, it's got a great dialogue going behind the scenes. I do feel like the lines are smartly observed. I do feel like I'm laughing a lot here. When he punches the guy and gives him a black eye, all of this, I'm really enjoying it, shockingly enjoying it. I think it helps that this person in the lead role of Joe is Michael Moriarty, and it took me a little bit to place him. His hair hadn't receded far enough in the <laughs> late 80s. But finally, I realized I watched this man for like four years on Law & Order. Oh, I, I, oh, wow. I do know who you're talking about. I don't know him from that. I know him from other Larry Cohen movies like Q and the stuff and, and what have you. But. Yeah, I've seen him in that stuff, but really, I mean, I was a huge Law and Order fan when it started. I didn't watch it, you know, in season 82. But in the 90s, I was big onto Law and Order and this guy was the lawyer in that. Yeah, he's a familiar face, and his ex-wife is a very familiar face. Oh my god, I thought we were in trouble if we were going to be stuck with Ronnie Blakely again. The worst thing about Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> 
I was rolling. I'm always happy to see her. She actually seems a little bit more involved in this movie in her single scene. But man, I love the fact that she calls him out of his South Africa thing saying something's medically wrong with their son. She's lying. It's never revisited. She just wants to dump him, right? I mean, because she disappears from this picture. She just wants to hand off her kid because he's too much trouble for her to raise her and her third husband. I, I do like the son, Jeremy, self-diagnosis. Didn't they just tell you? I'm fucked up. <laughs> and that's it. like that. And then it's a father and son off to Maine. Never to revisit this wife again. I'm surprised the father stuck around because, I'm sorry, if I'm in the middle of this massive discovery and I fly back to the States because my son is supposedly having a medical emergency and I find out my bitch of an ex-wife lied, I'm going to say, hey, son, and turn right back around and go back to my job. Yeah, this kid's (laughs) mom is threatening to put him in a psych ward if daddy won't come and get him. Awful parents on both sides. We're supposed to think this father's an asshole, but the fact that he stays in the States and takes the son already makes me think he's a good guy. He gives him an option. I think he says, do you want to go to Peru or do you want to go to Jerusalem's lot? And I don't know that the kid ever weighs in on it. I think that if I were that kid, I'd want to go see another country or at least go somewhere where they sacrifice people. But who knows? Actually, both places sacrifice people. He just doesn't know that yet. (laughs) But in one place, you have to fix up your shack of a house. In the other place, you're in the jungle. I'd take the jungle. Yeah. Hey, how's he going to keep those designer clothes clean, though, in the jungle? Oh, man, did I have an amazing flashback i think i dress like this <laughs> i wore this outfit there are pictures from a wedding it was a blue blazer but i had it with the rolled up and the loafers yes. and the no socks it's the miami vice look it could only be 1987 where small children were pretending to be don johnson and calling it dressing up wow wow i think that this is second only to Corey Haim in the original lost boys for the most 80s wardrobe now playing has covered I I don't remember Lost Boys enough to make a case for it, but I'm going with this one. I mean, this one literally had me time traveling. He does have the mullet, which I sported in 87, the business in front party and back. So that may put it a little over the top with the hairdo. Yeah. And all of this is over top. This is so 80s. At this point, who can even imagine Toby Hooper? That feels like another century. All that slow building scares of the Toby Hooper TV movie when they're negotiating buying a used car and out on the roads. This feels like some crass comedy, you know, like National Lampoon should be in the title. National Lampoon's Salem's Lot, not Stephen King's. I'm just kind of waiting for them to get to Salem's Lot. The movie's called A Return to Salem's Lot. I actually expect, you know, it to take place in Salem's Lot and not be a movie about the journey to Salem's Lot. And (laughs) they take a little while to get there. I think these scenes, yeah, there's some funny lines in it. I don't think they're laugh out loud funny, like when they're negotiating with the used car salesman and the kids shaking down the used car salesman. And then the father steps in for round two. It's cute yeah does that ever come back though do you ever see the kid have to negotiate something with the vampires and he outsmarts them like that's what i don't get is you get these scenes yes (laughs) here's a little ha-ha but it's not going to ever pay off we're not actually developing the character here Uh, Yeah, I thought the kid was going to have to drive. So much was made about the fact that he had stole his uh, new stepdad's 
BMW or whatever, I thought for sure that, yeah, this would have something to do filler. So much of this movie is just filled with throwaway bits. They might have been even improv. Who knows if they were even scripted. But nothing that happens prior to them getting to Salem's Lot really matters. I guess you could make the case that we've learned a lot about the dad's character. He doesn't judge cultures. So if he's okay with Incas killing each other, he'll be okay with vampires eating cows when he gets there. But beyond that observational detail, I don't think anything we get in the first 15 minutes prepares us for where we're going to go next. Oh, don't you guys get it, though? It's all about establishing the relationship between father and son so that that we can then care what the hell happens to them when the vampires get involved. <laughs> oh, I was supposed to care about their relationship later on. Okay, interesting. Yeah, this kid who would never act again for good reason, and this wannabe John Lithgow. <laughs> this kid is a brat. I mean, he's smoking. I love the line, I can take the criticism, but not the fuck you. I mean, this kid has the worst potty mouth. Stick a bar of soap in there. This kid's such a brat. I don't want to see him redeemed. I want to see this kid get eaten by vampires. It, it's just, it's too much. I don't know what's more dead, Judge Axel or this kid's acting. Yeah, he's no great shakes, but he is an embodiment of so many youths that we've seen from Ferris Bueller to Big Shots. I mean, he's just another in the factory assembly that the 80s created of kids that are smarter than adults, sassier than adults. They're cool because they dress like adults, smoke like adults, talk like adults. You know, it was the era. I was a kid in the 80s, and I was celebrated as being better than any other generation. And, uh, you know, I would have appreciated that at the time. And now I just think it's kind of a funny time capsule to see this kid in this power play with his father here in small town Maine. They did shoot on location. I'm going to give him big props. This is not Southern California. I thought for sure we were going to get a back lot here, but it really does look like the farms and such of Maine. I did a road trip in New England this past summer, and this looked authentic, at least some of it. It is New England. It is not Maine, but it does have the right kind of atmosphere. It's mostly Vermont. Mm. Close enough. But they finally get to Aunt Clara's house in Salem's Lot. And Stuart, you said that there are some plot similarities here. And it is almost like Cohen remembered reading the book a decade earlier and just went off memory. There's a guy who told stories and he went to his aunt's something about living with his aunt when he was a kid in salem's lot and there's vampires there so i do see some weird echoes like a funhouse mirror of king's original story when they're going to their aunt's house but at this point i'm still taking the first salem's lot into continuity and i'm like what happened to the fire (laughs) <laughs> I'm right there with you, Artie. I'm like, okay, there's a bumbling cop or a constable, sorry, once again uh, in this town. But yeah, I'm looking, where's the burned down house? Where's that Marsden house? Nowhere to be seen. Never talked about. There is no house except the ants who they'll fix up. But no, there there is no murder in there, no haunting memories from it. Well, maybe the Marsden house did burn down. Is it totally out of continuity, though? Could the, some of the vampires maybe survived and then rebuilt this stuff? And they moved there in the 1600s yes. before the last movie? <laughs> That's where it flushes down the toilet, is that Salem's Lot was the Plymouth Rock for vampires who were tired of Puritans <laughs> and pilgrims and wanted to go to their own land. Yeah, good point. You're right. Can't argue with that. Uh, It's worth pointing out, by the way, that Aunt Clara, her last name, Hooper. It's the Hooper house. And it's on the Overlook Hill. I do think there's a couple king puns going on here. 
Toby Hooper having directed Salem's Lot, the Overlook Hotel being the place where Shining took place. And there are humans here, and we will later learn what these humans are. They are half-human, half-vampire hybrid slaves that they call drones. Probably not unlike what Straker was, quite frankly. Right, but the fact that everybody in this town is in on it. If you see a person, be it the strangely disaffected guy who works at the gas station, to the constable, everybody there is a drone. Yes. I wonder how this town has been kept such a secret. I mean, when they pull up to this drone at the gas station, they're like, give me 10 gallons of unleaded. We don't have unleaded. We don't have soda either. Like, they don't have anything. They don't even try to pretend they're a real town, it seems. Yeah, but there is an urban myth about it because there's some punk rock teenagers that come swinging by later and they know that, you know, this is an evil place and they just happen to be coming there on the one night a year that the vampires decide to give up cow and go for human blood. (laughs) Yeah, I think that they accidentally drove off the set of Return of the Living Dead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought, too. I mean, that's where I started to really get the vibe of this. Okay, this isn't what we saw last week. This isn't supposed to be serious. This is satire. We're supposed to have more fun. And yeah, I wrote down Return of the Living Dead with vampires. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. We're all on the same page. Well, I just can't help it because we covered that movie as our spring donation series. And when I see these 80s punks dressed in that same way in a van (laughs) acting just like they did before, I have expected one to do a naked dance on the van. And I entirely wanted to see that. Yeah, it's a shame that these punks go away so fast and this turns more into Return of the Living Dead 2, a story about a kid running around. But I did like this. I got excited. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm going to have some fun now with punks running through this town fighting vampires. But it goes all very quickly. It's all part of the plot, really. I mean, we'll find out. All of this is a manipulation. The police let this Sherry girl go, tell her where to head to, just because they want her to be the one to lead Joe and his son to Judge Axel. Okay, is that what's going on? Because I was very confused, even in revisiting this, because you've got the constable there. And we get the constable is at least somewhat complacent because he's not going to do anything to stop the vampires. But he takes the one punk girl and seems to be giving her advice on how to escape. Go to the church. They can't go in there, which is good advice. That is a rule from the vampires from the original Salem's Lot is the consecrated ground. Yeah, this is so confusing at this point because we don't know about the drones. So I'm wondering why is this – first of all, why aren't the vampires attacking the cop? Why is the cop just kind of watching this go down but now he's helping someone? It's very disorienting until you realize later what – you know, this town is made up of these half vampires and full vampires. But right at this point, you, it's very confusing and disorienting. But I didn't need to know the cop's genealogy to understand he was in some way the striker for these vampires. That was my go-to. But why would he help this one girl instead of the others? And then maybe this is just bad camera work. But then he seems to be restraining the girl to prevent her from running. And then he lets her go again. And she does go running off. And I couldn't figure out why, if he was a slave to the vampires, he'd help this one at all. But you're telling me, Stuart, the entire plot was actually to get Joe involved? 
I believe that there is some dropped lines about they're wanting her to be the one and that the master knows about this. I mean, he's even watching out in the woods. He's watching this all go down. They're not there to eat all the kids. You know, they're coming out to Joe. They're like, what's the best way to tell him I'm a vampire? Let's get this pretty girl and he'll want to help her. She's in distress. He'll want to go to the judge and the leader of the town. And that's where we'll break the news to her and break her neck. So let's talk about the master. (laughs) (laughs) We'll start with the makeup, because I do know that one of your biggest hurdles last time for Barlow was that they put that blue makeup and tried to do Nosferatu in 1979. Do you think the 80s prosthetic version is better here? That's not a prosthetic. That's a puppet. Puppet, sure. This is if Nosferatu and Troll had a love child. (laughs) Yeah, I thought this was a latex mask I went down and bought at a Halloween store that year. It it did not move like a latex mask. I love it, though. It's so horrible, but it's from (laughs) my childhood. It's my horrible, damn it. (laughs) Yeah, I think I know what you mean, and it's my memory from this movie. It's like, what I remembered was that the makeup looked really, really bad, and that you would never see the mouth move. They would always have voiceover and cut away whenever he was talking, because it was so clear that they could not make... It's not... Yeah, you're right. It's, It's a puppet. It's not prosthetics, or it's just an immovable head that they put on top of some stunt guy but it is not sufficient and can we please say that toby hooper did this much better can we agree on that much i like this one better what i'm sorry i can't go there arnie yeah i'm right there with you Stuart (laughs) hooper i'm gonna just say it flash forward for the rest of this podcast all the horror elements were done better with hooper this <laughs> this doesn't have horror this is more comedy i'm laughing more than i'm ever creeped out in this film there's nothing scary here oh i agree i mean this vampire looks like a ghoulie i mean he, <laughs> he he's a smurf that was bitten by a vampire he's so blue but at least i can in some strange way find him cute and retro versus the rodent nosferatu from the last one this one's more interesting i wish this master got more play i mean he looks like a killer clown doesn't he got left behind you know you're you're hitting my soft spot there with killer clowns yes it does have that there is a way when you don't have a good budget to make your bad effects look appealing and it's tricky but i think it's when you inject humor into the scenario we're willing to go along with the artifice a lot more killer clowns is a great example of a movie that i think can be kind of scary but is mostly a satire and a comedy and the clowns kind of work in both ways for me there and here i don't think judge axel works in the same way but i'll grant you he is the right look for this style of quote-unquote horror he fits this salem's lot i don't think that if they had gotten the same guy from Toby Hooper's movie to be in this one, it would have played at all. The only thing, though, is I was never convinced that this was Judge Axel. It's not until the very end of the movie that they state that this blue Muppet we've been seeing throughout is Judge Axel. So I'm honestly, this whole movie, hoping there's an even bigger evil. Because these people just don't seem that evil or that smart as far as the vampires go. I'm right there with you, Arnie. The the whole time, this I guess we're calling him the master, this bad puppet vampire. Like we we see him throughout the film every once in a while, and, and we get to the end. I'm like, what's going on with him? And oh, Axel kind of starts to turn into that, but not really because they don't have the special effects budget. Yes. I guess that was supposed to be him the whole time, but yeah, yeah it was him. Yeah, 
It was his voice when he when he was quote unquote talking when they layered the voiceover over it. It was the actor that had been playing Judge Axel. So yeah, it's him. But you ask an interesting question. Are these people so bad? Is this scary? Is that the point of these vampires? Because I think they make a good pitch here to Joe that, okay, yeah, we just snapped some teenager's neck, but that's just our holiday. By and large, we are more moral and have better character than human beings. Even better, they have never taken a penny from the government. This is the perfect (laughs) tea party society. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I do feel like on some level there is a jab here at the blue bloods and the well-established families that it's a class thing, I think, more than anything else. It might be a political thing as well. Maybe it's conservative. But yes, they're very proud of their heritage and the culture that they've created. And they don't take money from the government. They don't like to eat humans because, you know, they have sexually transmitted diseases and they take drugs and all that i do see them as very much as being an old money society new england kind of thing yeah i completely agree i mean they mention the mayflower and then this is a boat where everybody was thought to have died and they came over instead it is truthfully a 400 year old rivalry between these two people although i mean i guess these vampires are almost like the amish they just stayed in salem's lot maybe there was a vampire rumspringa every once in a while but (laughs) they just stayed in rural maine yeah they bring others into it i mean that's what we'll learn about joe is that his aunt clara wasn't a blood relation she was a friend of the family i don't she must have gone out to meet him and he came there for a summer vacation but he didn't grow up in this town otherwise he wouldn't have ever left he would have been a a drone or a vampire but what is it these vampires want because i was wondering why are they killing these teenagers with such reckless abandon but yet joe and jeremy are left completely alone what do they want what they end up wanting is joe to write their history, knowing that it won't be read for at least 200 years. And why won't it be read for 200 years? This this is what's confusing (laughs) to me. It's like, we want you to write this book. It's going to be a bestseller, the Vampire Bible, but it's going to sit on a shelf for 200 years. (laughs) I don't understand it either. I think that was a line of dialogue they should have cut or rewritten there. It's No, they should want him right there because he is a well-established writer uh, and anthropologist and that he can do justice to their culture it would make sense if i felt like their plot was acceptance that's what they say that they want but truly they're evil really they just want to suck these people and turn them into one of them they're not really interested in his writing at least the way i take it by the end well what they say though is they wanted somebody who was respected in their own time so since this guy had gone and witnessed these rare fertility things 200 years from now they'd look back and say oh this guy really knew his shit and he wrote this oh come on name me a well-respected anthropologist from 200 years ago that ain't gonna ever happen (laughs) well charles darwin but it wasn't quite 200 years but you know there is some truth to the idea that history ultimately vindicates some people galileo or what have you people that in their time were seen as crazy with crazy ideas but it doesn't quite play that way here i mean is he going to take this 
book, which they're calling a Bible. It's a weird way of calling a history book. But are they? is he going to take this book and immediately get published? Does that mean everyone's going to come to Salem's Lot and see and meet vampires for themselves? It, it's an interesting idea. What they have here, the idea of a whole society tucked away that has been living like a normal one is fascinating. And I love little details here, but I don't feel like it's used to its best potential. I don't really understand what they hope to gain out of corralling Joe and his son. You know what, we've referenced Return of the Living Dead, but the vibe I really get as this film progresses, another satirical, humorous horror film is An American Werewolf in London, where they really took this werewolf mythology and they expanded it. It's weird. You got, you know, these ghosts of the werewolf victims hanging out in porno theaters. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity here to do something fun like that you know oh we just suck on cow's blood and we could really eat garlic and our you know they're, they're having a lot of fun with the mythology here i wish it was better executed i wish it was better written because i could see a lot of potential fun with what they want to do with this vampire bible you know what i'm seeing is actually more than king salem's lot you mentioned werewolf in london jacob and that's a really good humorous comparative but you look at vampires i'm almost seeing a spin on interview with a vampire where they had these little covens of vampires living for hundreds of years they fed or at least louis fed on animal blood because he didn't want to kill humans here we have them feeding on cows and it was funny i was watching this movie with marjorie while eating dinner which happened to be a hamburger she sees them feeding cows and goes, oh, poor cows. And I ask, what was your dinner? <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. And, you know, interview with a vampire, in another way, I was thinking about the way that children can be turned before they grow into adulthood. I, I think we get that storyline here as well with Jeremy and the 12-year-old Tara Reed. I did a double take when I saw that. I'm like, no, nah, it can't be the same Tara Reed. There's no way Tara Reed is getting on Now Playing when it's not an American Pie retrospective. I didn't know she did anything else. Tara Reed before all the bad plastic surgery. She was 12. <laughs> this, this is how I will always think of her. She is a vampire now in my mind. Of just, She will eternally be this child seductress. It's hilarious that it's her. I did not know until I saw the credits. I did not recognize it by looking at her. How could you? But now that that I, I know that it's her. It's just, it will be my go-to Tara Reid movie. <laughs> Have you seen <laughs> any others? Uh, I saw Alone in the Dark, and it is fantastically <laughs> bad. I'd love to cover it, but this one beats it all. But yeah, I was thinking that, and let's talk about Tara Reid and the other girl, because the vampires, they're basically rolling out the red carpet for Joe, and by extension, Jeremy, by giving them whores. Yes. What doesn't quite make total sense is that Joe had a crush when he was 15 or whatever he was and visited quote-unquote Aunt Clara. There was this girl Kathy. Kathy couldn't have been a vampire at the time because she has grown and we learned that once you're bitten by a vampire you stay that age forever. No, no. She was 17 then and she's 17 now. What? Yeah. She's 17? Yeah. That's what they say. She yeah. doesn't look like no 17-year-old I know, yes. but she's supposed to be that. Then they should have had full conviction in their idea and cast a really young person against Michael Moriarty. I guess they wanted to have someone that looked more age-appropriate. Well, shit, she was only 19. How? What do you want? Oh, because she was... Then she... That... To me, I guess I saw a 20-something. I just... I, she didn't look like a teenager to me. Yeah, she was 19 when this movie was filmed, and... Oof. 
she I'd go vampire for her. <laughs> yeah, it's a good ploy. I think that that is interesting, but I didn't get that she hadn't aged. I thought that that was a weird quirk and a detail, but okay, she is exactly the same way that he left her. Yeah, it's a fantasy come to life. He'd fantasized about this girl, and as he got older, I mean, of course, you'd think she gets older, the fantasy goes by. They offer him the fantasy. That said, I gotta say, I don't understand the fact that he sees a person killed. His son, who he came to Salem's Lot to reconnect with, is running off in a town full of vampires, and his thought is, Let's bone. Hey, opportunity for underage sex. (laughs) Priorities, priorities. It's legal here. I mean, the judge wants him to do it. I mean, this is statutory rape, but, you know. Is it statutory rape if she's 117 but just was turned when she was 17? (laughs) Good point, good point. These are technicalities to be argued in vampire court. Maybe that will be in the return to the return to Salem's Lot sequel. I don't know. But I'm fascinated by this concept. I actually think it's kind of neat that she's there for him. I don't know why he doesn't recognize Aunt Clara. He remembers her, but he does not remember the woman that was raising him my question is why joe is committing statutory rape maybe maybe not jeremy his son he runs off with amanda to a wedding a child wedding two kids right like what is this this is again like Stuart said interview with a vampire these vampires could be hundreds of years old they're just in child bodies but they have the emotional maturity, the mental maturity of adults, just not the physical embodiment of it. And they, in fact, reference that here later on when Jeremy's talking about getting married to Amanda and being this pubescent vampire for eternity is that he would grow in spirit, but his body would stay the same, which would help lure new human food. Okay, I kind of got that vibe that, yes, they look like kids, but they might be hundreds of years old, so they're having these weddings. I don't know. I don't think the movie made it very clear. It was kind of odd when you realize who's getting married, but I figured that out from the context. I haven't seen Interview with a Vampire, but that's what I kind of guessed was going on. Yeah, Kirsten Dunst in the movie. It's actually the best part of the movie, in my estimation. And she It was her angst was how she could never be a woman because she had been turned as a child. And I think that's what we're seeing here at the vampire wedding. My question for you guys is, how are they doing it in a church? Vampires aren't supposed to be able to get a church. I thought that was the school they were in. I didn't think it was the church. I didn't see the cross there. Okay, so that was, everything happens at the school. The school is their congregation. That's how it made it seem for all these kids. They're always at the school. They sleep in the basement of the school. They have night classes there. So I just took it as a school. I also thought it was the church and was confused, but I didn't see crosses, but yet they were lined up like pews, so it was a little bit confusingly staged. It was an assembly. What I want to know is why are vampires getting married? If the whole point is to get away from these puritanical pilgrims, if if you're a vampire, there is no till death do you part because you're already dead. Well, let me help the movie out a little bit and say maybe that's the satire. Maybe that's what they're parroting is that these are ultra conservative people, but they pretend to be better than humans. 
they're unaware of their own bullshit. I don't know. Yeah, you got to help this out because the, the satire, <laughs> you know, there's nuggets of it. They never really mine them, though, and play them out to their full potential. That's I think that's my ultimate judgment of this film is they always have these good little starts, but then it kind of falls flat. I don't know if it's editing, you know, talking about is this a school? Is this a church? That scene with the cop, he's restraining her, telling her, let go. There's all these moments throughout this film where I just they say one thing and then something else, the opposite happens. And then it goes back to what they originally said, like. There's so much of this film that's just messy and muddled. No, no. What the word you're looking for, Jacob, is cheap. <laughs> I don't necessarily blame the editing. I think I learned so much when we covered Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, 4, and 5 about just not having the coverage. You get your shot. The whole point is to knock this thing out really cheap, get it done. Who cares if it's shit? They're seeing it on a TV anyway, and let's just get it made. There's so much here that doesn't make sense, and it's probably one of the scenes that they save filming for end and just never got to film. Yeah, I agree. I would have liked much more clear character arcs. What I wanted to understand is, did he take the job to write this Bible? There's a few scenes where we see him writing, but yeah, I never got the sense that he actually agreed to do it. But then next scene, he's writing it. The weirdest thing is, it's the next day. We're in day two when he's writing this book. I thought, like, much time had passed. The house looks a lot better. They certainly... No, yeah, the house is getting better. It has to have been several days. No, they then state that it was the night before that the boy was bitten. This takes place, the whole thing, over just the course of a few days and oh, wow. so when he's writing the book that is at most the third day in salem's lot yeah at one point we see oh we're just gonna leave we're gonna escape and then they see the cop and then they go back to the aunt's house to fix it up like i don't get yeah this is i guess chief arnie they, they're saying things and then they're doing the opposite i don't know how much time is passing it gets confusing i know how much time is passing we're about 45 to 50 <laughs> minutes in the movie and you know what i have been surprised up to this point i have been enjoying it a lot more than i thought i would but you guys are right ultimately this production is flagging ultimately it's not working because i don't understand the characters i'm kind of throwing up my hands what else is, are they going to do with this sort of interesting town but nowhere to go and then in comes samuel fuller and everything goes out the window i'm in, totally in love with the movie again once i see samuel fuller now do you guys know his work either as an author or as a filmmaker i'm not aware of him no not by name. I mean, if you tell me some of the stuff he's done, maybe I'll know it. But the way you're reacting to this guy, when he has his first scene, I'm like, Alfred Einstein showed up? And then he just <laughs> makes a few comments and drives away. And I'm like, is he going to return? Or is he just there to remind Joe, getting old really sucks? Well, he does serve that purpose for Jeremy. Jeremy sees this as a reason to go with Amanda and not you know, back to normal society. But no, Samuel Fuller, he was someone I was turned on to when I was getting into filmmakers and learning about auteurs. He does not have a famous career. I think the most famous movie he made was The Big Red One with Mark Hamill, a war movie. 
But by and large, he's known and beloved for making all of these very quirky, culty, noir movies from the 50s, 60s. I'll point you to The Naked Kiss. It begins with a bald prostitute beating up the camera, and it, it never stops being crazy. He's got a really... I think he was one of the first real cult directors. I mean, I think that he was one of the first people to independently make movies that had, like what Larry Cohen is doing here, to have sort of a subversive, satirical side to the genre element. And so... I had never seen him act in a movie. I did not realize that he was going to come in in this way. But let me put it this way. The character he plays on screen is exactly like the movies that he makes. It has that spirit. It has that fuck you craziness. I mean, it's probably not surprising for you to learn that he actually was someone that fought in World War II, liberated Jewish concentration camps in Germany. He really is a Nazi killer in real life. He is playing himself here, and he's such a larger-than-life personality. I just love watching him. Hey, I love a good Nazi killer in a film, but it is just... Come on, that is right out of left field. We're watching a vampire movie, and all of a sudden this guy, I'm looking, have you seen this man? He's a Nazi, and I need to kill him. Huh? What? What? What, what am I watching? It is very out of left field. I would like to know how these vampires who've been in America since the 1600s were Nazis. They're not. They're not. I thought one of the people he was searching was one of the vampires. That's how I took it. No, no, that is a lie that Jeremy tells him to get him to go to school. He says he looks like one of my teachers. That's where all the vampires live. They're going to send him there, and he's going to get bitten. That's all just a trap. Okay, I took that as one of the teachers was the Nazi. No, I think that would be a fun idea to explore, but like you said, they painted themselves in the corner by saying they came over with the Mayflower or whatever. That that won't work. That doesn't fly. So what does fly is this totally random Nazi killer stumbling into town twice because he lost his glasses. Right. And the man he's looking for, Kesserling, is still out there for a sequel or a reality TV show or whatever they want to do with it. And and I would love to see that movie. I'm going to put it out there right now. I would love a sequel in which we don't see another vampire, but it is Samuel Fuller finding and killing Kesserling. I would deeply enjoy that. Well, Samuel Fuller is dead, so I think those hopes are dashed. I'm sure you're right with that, but all I mean to say is that, like you, I was becoming very frustrated with this movie and waiting for it to end around this time, but once he's back, I am smitten. I think that this character, from beginning to end, my favorite bit, when he's killing the drones and he pretends to get grabbed, only so he can crouch down and get a better shot off. I just, I think this guy's crafty. I love how he keeps staging his own death so that he can come back with guns blazing. At this point, by the time he shows up and becomes a major player in the movie, which is just, again, so strange the way he comes into this. But when that happens, I kind of like his little tricks. I do like when he's faking getting pulled in. I don't know this guy now that you've mentioned his career, but he's reminding me of the sci-fi guys I know from the 50s. Like, I've had the opportunity to meet a couple of these, like, sci-fi authors from the 50s. There was, uh, Forey Ackerman was a big one who we again talked about with Return of the Living Dead Part 2. And these kind of crazy guys who, they got old as time tends to do, but they still had this rascally spirit from when they would write EC comics and the like. And so he was giving me that vibe, which helped this movie. Not knowing who this guy is or his cinema, just adding that kind of fun camp was helping this movie. But 
at this point, it then really becomes strange in that it's now humans against vampires with Jeremy kind of caught in the middle. He's turning. It kind of hurts. Does They give him some aspirin. I guess aspirin helps with the pain of going undead. <laughs> I don't know how you treat it, and I don't think Joe knows either. But he tries to get him out of town, and it kills a few drones, but that doesn't work. He's He's stuck there. And Van Meer is the one that really gets them. What I don't understand is why they ultimately decide they must kill the town. Why they are like Nazis. They make a comparative that ultimately that these people don't deserve to live. And so they're going to hole up in a church, wait for daylight, and then execute them all. It's not enough to live and let live. They must die. Yeah, I think it's when we see Judge Axel. They start luring these, what, these tour buses coming into town and feeding on the humans like you know i think that's when they realize that they are a threat that yeah they haven't fed on humans because they don't want to get aids or other stds but they're, they're always willing to and I, I guess that's how i just took it there's bus shows up and they start feeding on them you're right yeah i mean what if they keep getting married and more humans will die but they really only start killing humans because he won't write the book is that why? I, I I got the sense that they weren't being honest. They weren't being forthcoming. That they were telling him that, oh, we only occasionally eat innocent people, but by and large, we're this old, beloved society. But the truth of the matter is, is that, yeah, that tons of tourists are being packed in there to be devoured. They don't have the budget to show us that, but that's what I got from that one tour bus scene. Is that they're hypocrites and they're liars, and thus everything that they've been selling, the idea that they're a benevolent society is a lie, and that it must be destroyed for that reason. Again, these plot lines are not clear. No, it's <laughs> as good of a guess as anything I can give it. I agree that I think they're liars because they started off killing those four punks. They are murderers. They're also speciest. The drones is a derogatory term. Yeah. And yet I wondered how they reproduced. There weren't a whole bunch of infant vampires around. I was wondering what happened when that vampire got pregnant, how that would work. Yeah, that's right. That one night at the lake, Joe and his Kathy, I think she's about ready to deliver. She's got a baby bump anyway, right? Yeah, their gestation period is much faster than that of humans. Yes, anyone that's seen Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1 would know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But eventually they stumble to a climax. It's all a big mess. But like I'm saying, anytime Van Meer is there, anytime Sam Fuller is screaming, you'll never make a popsicle out of me and shooting himself. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing and I'm, I'm really enjoying the movie, but they stumble to some kind of climax here with uh, the school play Dracula and Jeremy about to get staked by the master. Yeah. That is a very odd ending. Although I think they still are just playing. I don't think he wants to kill the boy because he he had many opportunities to i think it's a last chance hey become a vampire and write this book for us kind of plot and we knew he was going to become that master because they had the guy at the gas station who goes he gets angry and then he shows his real face and that's when i realized he was the smurf in the bushes right yeah and they do go back to the original salem's lot though because they're gonna burn the town again they start setting fire to the coffins now I did just recently read Dracula as part of my now playing homework, and I do know that in the original Dracula, one of the things the people did to try to kill him was to destroy his coffin so he couldn't return to them, but I never really got 
that the vampires had to go to their specific coffins. And in fact, Judge Axel and his wife have these two coffins. There's a scene where they go to bed early. It's like the Dick Van Dyke show, right? (laughs) (laughs) Good day, dear. Yeah, I thought that one was kind of funny, too. But then they go and find Judge Axel's coffin later, and he's in a separate coffin that's hidden elsewhere. So by burning the coffins, they can't just, I don't know, the kids sleep in the basement. Why can't all the vampires just go to the basement? (laughs) Maybe they have little coffins in the basement that they sleep in. I got the sense that when they were burning these coffins, it was setting the rest of the town on fire, or were they just also burning the buildings down? I'm very confused with this climax. There were no buildings on fire. The fires were all very well contained, and the actors all (laughs) stayed a minimum of three feet away. Yeah, but they were real fires. This is pre-CGI. It looked, some of that work did look deadly. I did worry about that child walking around in the flames. There. I did not worry about the person who pretended to lie down in the coffin when they were a good <laughs> three to four feet behind it. <laughs> that was Amanda. That was Tara Reed. She could have been burned, Arnie. For some reason, I got the sense that this whole town was going up in flames. Maybe that's just what they wanted us to think. Yeah, I got that sense, too. I mean, Van Meer says something to the effect of, we got to get some gas. I'm thinking he wants to fuel up the car so they can escape. No, I once this is happening, I'm, I realize this is just part of his crazy war mentality. We got to kill them all. But again, killing them all, they're all alive. They're just out in the streets because they don't have a coffin to go to. Yeah, there are some buildings on fire, but there are plenty of buildings still standing and they just all stand outside and wait for the sunrise. It's I know. And I felt a little bad for Aunt Clara. I mean, she does accuse Joe of murdering her. And yeah, I've seen this old lo- lady chomp on people and kill. But I don't know. She's still an old lady to me. She still looks like she should be in Leave it to Beaver or something <laughs> like that. I, I feel bad that she's going to smolder in the sun with everyone else. I do love how Judge Axel gets it, though. Jeremy impales him with an American flag. That is just like, okay, if you didn't get the tone of this film up to this point, you surely get it now. Like, this is not supposed to be serious. This is hilarious. Uh, An American flag gets impaled through a vampire. Yeah, it was a fun moment. I do love, though, the uh, stop-motion vampire death scene. That is so hysterically. It was was really Ray Harryhausen-level claymation. Yeah, the effects are not good, but maybe that's okay. Oh, don't get me wrong. Again, I love them in a Pee-wee's Big Adventure kind of way. (laughs) But, man, they just are so out of place because there's so few of them. You know, if the whole movie had that same vibe, then it would feel coherent. Here, it's like there's no special effects at all, but when they show up, they really call themselves out. Yeah. And to wrap up the film with a nice bow you know we started off with joe just kind of being of the objective viewer of these different cultures and watching them murder each other but now we know he's human because van meer the nazi killer just drops a line you're becoming a human being like i never got the sense that joe is on this arc of finding his humanity but we're told that (laughs) like many things in this film we're told something that doesn't quite make sense uh, if you give a hard ass a, a kid instead of a camera, I guess he, his heart eventually melts. Or just a 17-year-old hoe. <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason, uh, you can never go home again. They're leaving Salem's Lot off to more adventures. I hope they get Kesserling. That that plot got dropped, but I really hope that the next stop is to actually find that Nazi <laughs> that is somewhere in Maine. Well... Let's find out if this stop was worth taking. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend that our listeners return to Salem's Lot? 
Jacob. You know, there is a lot that I enjoy about this film, uh, but it's more, like I said, it's these nuggets, and I wish they were mined. I, I guess if this was a feature film where it had more of a budget, more, I, I guess, oversight of the script, maybe we would have seen things developed better as it is presented to us. It does have its fun moments. It does get batshit crazy when... Sam Fuller shows up out of nowhere to kill a Nazi. Like, yes, these are fun things to laugh at. You called it out, Stuart, a midnight movie. But when they sit down to really take in this whole film, thinking about all the scenes, there's a lot of stuff where, you know, fixing up the house and so many things that they never go anywhere. It, it never becomes that full fun romp for me. I get some chuckles in there, but I never fully enjoying it and going with it. it it's camp. I could see an audience for this. I'm going to give it a week not recommend, but I don't know. Maybe I'll come back years later and, and see it with a different set of eyes like it sounds like you have, Stuart. But for now, week not recommend. It's it just not enough there to be fully entertaining for me. Stuart. Uh, that's more generous than I thought you were going to be. I mean, honestly, I thought I was going to stand alone. When the movie finished, I was like, oh my god, the movie that I thought was going to be the worst Stephen King is this guilty of pleasure of mine, and how am I going to justify it to two people that are probably going to hate this? There are people that are really going to hate this movie, because it's a terrible horror movie, and it is a terrible continuation of Stephen King's novel and that Toby Hooper movie. Terrible. Terrible. If you liked anything about that, you probably aren't in sync with what's going on here. I don't know that anything here... This is a midnight movie. Toxic Avenger. Killer Clowns from Outer Space. The Stuff. I mean, you really got to think about horror comedies. Return of the Living Dead. The problem is, sometimes this is Return of the Living Dead, and sometimes this is Return of the Living Dead Necropolis. I do feel like they needed more money... And they needed a firmer hand in the director's chair to make this a smarter satire. I mean, there are, they've got a great idea here. It's a very poor execution. Even as a sloppy B movie, it looks really, really crappy. I'm on the fence, but you know what? Low expectations are going to prevail here. I did not think this movie was going to be worth watching, and I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I'll credit it all really in the end to Sam Fuller. I do feel like just watching Watching that character, knowing what I know about his movies and loving the movies that I've seen him make, seeing this as his swan song. I think this may have been one of the last films he even worked on. What a hell of a way to go out, Sam Fuller. So for Sam Fuller, I'm going to give this a very weak recommend. It's not a good movie, and I, I hope the listeners don't savage me for enjoying it, but uh, there's something here to enjoy if you have the right mentality. And I'm not going to savage you for enjoying it. There are things in here that I find myself liking, but it's because of my background. It's because I'm of a certain age and I grew up watching a certain kind of movie. And the fact that I didn't see this movie is completely the fact that it was called A Return to Salem's Lot, which was returning to a story I didn't want to see. Really, you could call this A Return to Once Bitten. For the many ties as it has to Salem's Lot, you say it's not a good sequel to King's work. It's not a sequel to King's work. It is Salem's Lot in name only. We were equally as confused what the hell Silent Night, Deadly Night Initiation had to do with Garbage Day as this movie is here. And that's what you get with this direct-to-video stuff. It almost becomes an anthology. And so, yeah, this is not a Stephen King movie. It is not a return to Salem's Lot. 
but what it is is a schlocky direct-to-video, at least intended to be, poorly made, low-budget horror romp that I used to watch endlessly. I've probably consumed more movies of this grade than anything else in my life because I would sit up with USA up all night <laughs> and watch movie after movie of this quality. So yeah, I can see, Stuart, why you would find a warm spot in your heart for it. But my God, you've got to come from a very specific background yes. in order to do that. And the fact that you know Sam Fuller's your cherry on top, I don't even have that. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it, quite honestly. I've seen half a dozen of his films. Again, Shock Corridor, Naked Kiss. Go look them up. I, you, you might enjoy them. They have a real modern midnight movie sensibility. But this is not a good movie. This is not even a passable movie. This is a movie that I look at and I can smile at and find a couple of things there enjoyable, but it's not a recommendable movie. I don't recommend you watch this. You could. I, I It's not a strong not recommend because if you have the same history I do of watching direct-to-video schlock again and again and getting a smile off bad effects and bad storytelling and a little bit of gore and a little bit of tits, then this is going to be at best a guilty pleasure, but it's not very good. It's not even one of the shining lights of the genre. The faintest praise I can damn this movie with is, God, it's a lot better than I expected. <laughs> yes, and that counts for something because I really did expect the very worst. And I think I'm pleasantly surprised. I didn't think anyone else would back me with a green arrow, but I'm pleasantly surprised that we all agree this is better than it could have been. Hey, look, I love trash cinema, but this is just mediocre trash cinema. I'll say I will return to return to Salem's Lot before I return to Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot. Wow. I mean, this was A- much shorter than even the yes. UK cut of Toby Hooper's film, <laughs> and be far more fun. You know, Cohen had that right. Toby Hooper's film, no fun. This, it was fun, it was just bad. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I just, I'm flipping the arrow. I think that's the only difference. Well, Jacob Stewart, we're going to return to Salem's Lot once more because TNT did in 2004. Vaguely aware of this. Gotta say, wasn't watching a lot of TV in 2004. Wasn't watching any Stephen King in 2004. I remember a sulky picture of Rob Lowe <laughs> wondering why his career had gone this way. I used to market this, but other than this, I have no idea what's coming next. I'm excited for this. I was the one lone green arrow for that 70s Salem's lot. Hey, now with a, you know, a evolved writing technique, better effects... Yeah, let's see what we could do with this story. I like this story, so I'm excited to see what we could do with a modern retelling of it. And I'll go into details next week as to what I did and didn't watch about this in 2004, but I will say, I'd just like to give something a green arrow this series. Maybe if it's not Toby Hooper and it's not Michael Moriarty, maybe it's Rob Lowe. We'll find out next week, and in the meantime, come to our forums. Let us know what you're thinking about this Stephen King retrospective series that we're going to ride through close to the end of the year. We After Salem's Lot, we've got The Shining. So come to the forums. There's a link at nowplayingpodcast.com. And while you're at nowplayingpodcast.com, if you enjoy this show, please head to iTunes 
give us a five-star review. It helps other people find our show. And finally, don't forget, I am reviewing all of the Salem's Lot stories. There are three of them, one a week as we go through this here at Now Playing over at booksandnachos.com. You can hear my reviews of the original King works. And don't forget, for those who want a little more horror, we fuck with the Chuck Child's Play out of the vault because you demanded it. Details at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. Until next time, ciao, Constable. Thelma Bird. It will drive them out of their hiding places. All of them. It will purify Salem's life. And the others will be on the run and on the hunt. For us. For us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I just don't like things that suck your blood and have conversations afterwards. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Steve Salem's Lot novel and short stories Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road from the Night Shift Collection. Literature's become elitist. It's like black and white photography. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, and join us each week for another new King movie review. You take your mother and anyone else that you could persuade to go. In the archive section of our website, you can also hear reviews of other films such as The Texas Jail Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Why don't you come up and have a drink one night? To tell you the truth, Richard, the place scares me. But the truth is, everything happens here. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. What would you give for this miserable boy? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Whoever feeds you. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. 95% of our business is done online. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Saints preservers. Now Playing's Salem's Lot Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Don't you guys ever sleep around here? I mean, don't you even get tired? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. What a rude boy talking to his father like that. And in front of company. The Salem's Lot films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Let it be. Sometimes these badges get in the way. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Would you feel more comfortable if we stepped into the confessional? 
Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright to all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. It's been a gruesome day. This was intended to be a direct to DVD. There was no DVD. No DVD then. (laughs) How the hell are we going to get from the South American jungle to Spain? I don't. How are we? Yeah, me. (laughs) (laughs) If we went to Spain, I watched the wrong film. (laughs) National Lampoon should be in the title. National Lampoon's Salem's Lot, not Stephen King's. Judge Foley, don't eat the truckster. I don't know what that means. (laughs) From Ferris Bueller to Big Shots. I mean... Oh, God, I remember that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go low. There it is. My second date was at Big Shots. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But they do finally get to Aunt Sarah's house. And I think this is one of the similarities you were talking about, Stuart, because... Some of these character traits, it's almost like... It's Aunt Clara, by the way. Oh, Aunt Clara? It's Aunt Sarah yeah. in the real book, then. Yeah. Is it Kara or Carla? I wrote Carla from the tombstone. It, uh, uh, let me look. Aunt Clara. Clara, Clara. Okay, yeah. Okay, I just okay. Yeah. scribbled it yeah. too quick. It was the actor that had been Judge Alex, so... Alex, Axel. Judge Alex. <laughs> yeah. It, it was the actor... Yeah, their gestation period is much faster than that of humans. Yes, anyone that's seen Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1 would know that. Of course, which is you. Yes. yes. On this call, it is you, and I think of all of our listeners, still you. Although, we always threaten to do that retrospective. I hope not, but maybe. I'm not reading the books, I can tell you that. <laughs>